Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Can I just say, it is the most rat sec thing that all three of us have stress-related jaw pain. So I will yeah. say, I went, I went to the dentist in like 2018, maybe. So like peak Trump crazy. And they were like, wow, like, you've really been grinding your teeth. Do you have a stressful job? <laughs> like, what's so stressful about screaming into the wind for four straight years? <laughs> I mean, no, granted, this this is a Washington, D.C. dentist that's like right down the street from the White House. So I imagine they probably see a lot of that. But still. I will say I developed TMJ really bad when I was in Baghdad understandably, slightly stressful job and situation. It was so bad I couldn't sleep at night because like, I couldn't lie on one side of my face because oh, it was no. so swollen. And so I went on this desperate wild goose chase all over Baghdad trying to find a self-creating microwavable mouth guard, which for some reason is really hard to find in Baghdad, <laughs> at least at that moment. Could not find one. And finally, I had our medic on like the embassy was kind of like, have you ever considered meditation? And I like rolled my eyes visibly. <laughs> it was like, what are you telling me? And then she gave me these meditation exercises and they actually totally helped. And I like all of a sudden could get to sleep and like my stress relieved and my jaw fixed itself. And I, so I do that now. I do like some deep breathing, some five, seven, nine breathing and a uh, little thing where you like tense up your whole body and let it go a little one phase at a time. It totally works. It's the ice cube melting into the water. Ooh, I don't know if I know that one. Shoot me, shoot it at me. It's oh, you just pretend that your body is an ice cube and then it melts gradually. I feel like inevitably that would make me have to pee. I feel like that would (laughs) backfire badly. But okay, I get it. I get it. I get it. I think yeah, I think it's really it's important to build the parasocial relationships, you know, between us and our audience. And now that they know about our jaw pain, that really exactly. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Rational Security. I am one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, and I am here with my two regular co-hosts, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And Alan Rosenstein. Hello, hello. And we are excited to have you, listener, with us here to talk through some of the week's big rational security news. How's your week going, guys? Let's get we have anyone to banter with. I'm just gonna have to banter with you. What's going on? You know, it's things are fine. Above freezing in Minnesota. I am very excited. The snow it's, is Okay, melting. it is like 60 is degrees Is that what we call the flooding season? <laughs> because that's yeah, how dangerous. Exactly. I miss yeah. snow. Oh, I yeah. We miss snow. snow big time this year in D.C. My son is so disappointed because he saw it. Now, one day, it kind of snowed a little bit. He got real excited. And all his books, they're always like, oh, yeah, wild, white terrain, huge things of snow. And then we have a bunch of photos of my wife and I. We got that blizzard like six, seven years ago in D.C. walking around that he found on our phones. It was like, snow is coming. Snow is coming. And Aww. I haven't had the heart to tell him it's probably not coming this year, buddy. But it'll come. Yeah. And one time in your lifetime, we will get snow. We may have to move eight states further north, but we will get it eventually. Do you have the um, that wonderful snowy day book? Oh, it's so good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Peter. Yeah. Peter. Poor Peter and his, uh, and his snowball. 
Oh, it's so cute. I love it. There's like a lot of good snow bo- snow and winter themed books, which is a little ridiculous because it's encouraging kids to go out in the snow. You're like, snow's deadly to little kids. We should encourage them to go out only selectively in little bits of per- period. But, you know, it's okay. That's fine. Scott would write the most I boring children's book. I think we over-rotate book. on dressing children appropriately for the outdoors. I think I think we, we, over, we overdress them. Got to toughen them up. Spoken like a true Minnesota. They have all the brown fat. They they like they're like little self heating self heaters. All right, okay. I like this principle. I'm going to stick with my philosophy, but you do what you you do with your kid what you desire. That's fine. Uh, whatever you can get away with under the law. Um, that's fine. On that principle of getting away with things under the law, we are excited to dig into some topics that have been percolating here in D.C. and around the country and around the world over this past week in the national security arena for what we are calling the all blowed up edition <laughs> because things are getting all blowed up left and right in the courts in our skies and around the country and we are excited to talk about it with you our first topic this week the truth is up there and we shot it down last week's controversy over a chinese spy balloon has blown up as the united states and canada have now shot down a number of similar unidentified flying objects over their airspace in the past few days but why is the Biden administration being so close-lipped about what these things are? Am I sounding conspiratorial enough? I hope I am. That's what I'm going for. Is there reason for concern? <laughs> Topic two. Now I know how Joan of Arc felt. This is a very specific reference that I will be making every time we mention special counsel Jack Smith, who appears to be turning up the heat on associates of former President Trump. Oh my God, this is a burning at the stake joke? <laughs> It is a burning at the state joke. It is also turning up the heat. He's turning up the heat. He's also a reference to a Smith song. Uh, So, you know, I'm going to try and make every time I talk about Jack Smith a reference to a Smith song because there's not a lot you could do with the Smith name pun wise. So this is where we're going to go with this. I think all Jack Smith related topics should be jokes about how he looks like a wizard in his purple robes. I think I think that should be the rule, actually. If this were a more visual medium, I would say yes, because that <laughs> picture is amazing. I'm not going to fight you on that thumbnail. one. It's phenomenal. Our thumbnail for any Jack Smith-related episode should just be the wizard picture instead Doing of the, the robes. logo. <laughs> amazing. European judges had to do it right. Absolutely. So well, special counsel Jack Smith, the wizard himself, appears to be turning up the heat on associates of former President Trump. Former Vice President Pence is reportedly invoking both executive privilege and the speech and debate clause to avoid testifying before a grand jury, while Smith is pushing to overcome another witness's claims of attorney-client privilege on the basis of the crime-fraud exception. What should we make of these moves by the special counsel? What do they tell us about where the investigation is headed? And topic three, oh, Nikki, you're on time. First in line, it blows my mind. Uh, Former South Carolina. No, no, no. <laughs> I got to pause you. I got to pause you there. I got to pause you right there, Scott. That was fabulous. That is top three. That is almost as good as the hunt for bread October. I mean, that was I, real good. Oh, I don't know about that. No, no, no look, look, almost as good. No, you will never top that. You've peaked. Hunt for bread October is extremely good. Hunt for bread October. That was our third episode, folks. It was almost two years ago. But regardless, this one I wrestled with we so hard early. to try and come up with good lyrics for this version of the song, and this is as good as I got. But it's like a B plus effort. But we'll take it. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley is the first Republican to officially step up and compete against former President Trump for the Republican nomination for president in 2024. Why declare now and what does her candidacy mean for the race? For our first topic, Quinta, let me hand it over to you to get us started. So I have lost count of how many Luftballons we are now at. Like 103. Five? Okay, yeah, let's go with that. Um, There are many. 
Uh, so in what the New York Times described as, and I quote, a wild weekend, end quote, American fighter jets shot down not one, not two, but three unidentified flying objects over Alaska, Canada, and Lake Huron right on the border. Um, so far, these objects continue to be unidentified, although the the New York Times and the Washington Post have both reported that they're probably not intelligence collecting devices and that they may well be harmless, which is kind of a bummer. The White House press secretary, uh, Corinne Jean-Pierre, also said in a really sad moment, I think, for all of us, that there is no indication that it is aliens. Wah, wah. Can we just can we pour one out for rational security co-host? Yeah, for the aliens. For pour one out for rational security co- uh, 1.0 co-host emeritus Shane Harris, for whom this must just be a just like crippling, crippling. Especially because he has to write all the stories yes, yeah, about he's, how they're he's on not the bylines aliens. of all those. All That's got to be painful. Brutal, salt in the wound, man. I'm so sorry, Shane. There was also a really interesting Washington Post report, which I particularly appreciated because it had uh, a reporter from the Capitol Weather Gang, uh, which is the D.C. Weather Bureau, on the byline about how it seems like the OG uh, spy balloon may have actually been intended to float over uh, U.S. military bases in Guam or Hawaii, but was carried off course um, and thus began our national descent into madness. Um, So what the hell is going on here? Is it actually aliens? Why are there all these objects in the sky? Scott, I'm going to turn it over to you first. So it's a really good question, and it's amazing the degree of speculation this has kicked up. And I don't know whether it's because it's like, other than this, maybe a little bit of a slow news day, or because I think it's mostly because the Chinese balloon story like got everyone. That's a real news story, and that got everyone kind of hyped up. And then all of a sudden, these other things are coming, and everyone's just still riding off the momentum. Dude, it's a million percent slows news week. Like this is just it. This this is just what the twenty four seven. No, it's because Twitter balloons are awesome. Media complex demands, and I think we should all feel deeply embarrassed about. It. I think that you're underselling the amazingness of the story <laughs> itself. It's amazing. I did I did for BBC yesterday or the day before, like an AMA type thing on this topic, where people were writing in and be like, "Do you have international law topic questions or?" I'll ask question about that, which, which uh, you know, I am not maybe the best person to answer all of them, but international law stuff, I can ha- happen. No international law questions. Lots of questions like, you know, what are these things? Why don't we know more? What's happening? I'm scared of these things floating in our skies. And it's triggered this very strong public reaction that I think is like very interesting. I have to say, though, I think this story is rapidly deflating in a way that's going to lead, lead us all fairly Would you say it's full of hot air? I think it's full of hot air. Yes, guys, very much so. Thank guys, you. This is so bad. This is uh, everyone is turning the podcast off right now. <laughs> no, stick, stick with us, guys. Stick with us, guys. Insight's coming. I swear. You know, we saw in this case the Biden administration take this really aggressive action against these three items that they say, okay, we picked up these things because after the Chinese balloon incident or around the time we became aware of the Chinese balloon, we upped the sensitivity of our NORAD, North Defense radar systems and surveillance systems, which they're understandably very cagey about what exactly they changed, where they said, basically, we upped the sensitivity, and now we're picking up new things and we're investigating them. That all makes sense. That all is very reasonable. Then they chose to shoot these things down. And it's that sort of dramatic action that I think really feeds into this narrative that may have been maybe a little bit of a miscalculation, right? 
And to me, it seems very clearly a reaction to the fact that they came under criticism for not shooting down the initial balloon, uh, Chinese uh, surveillance balloon, both from members of Congress, from members of their own party, John Tester, uh, other folks kind of came out, criticized them for not taking more urgent action against that. And they seem to have self-corrected a bit here. There's also an issue with these three other objects being like in the altitude that affects air traffic. But, you know, that it's not clear that you couldn't have just notified airplanes about where these things are located and steer around them. That's actually what the FAA protocol usually says for uh, errant unmanned balloons. Um, If you look it up, it says you're supposed to kind of track them and just notify planes to stay out of the area. So choosing to shoot these things down, I think both feeds into this kind of alarmist rhetoric, this idea that there's something really bad is happening here. And now they're kind of, I suspect, trapped in a difficult position where it sounds like they're slowly trying to leak out, hey, these things probably weren't a big deal. They're probably harmless. They're like, you know, weather balloons people lost track of, civilian balloons people just float up in the air and ended up higher in the altitude than intended, a bunch of other explanations. And and that's an awkward story to come back and say, hey, we, we blew these things up and it cost us not just three, but actually four because we missed once $400,000 missiles to shoot down these balloons. And that's a hard narrative. And I and I kind of suspect at this point, like they're doing a genuine investigation trying to figure these things out. I think that's the prudent thing to do. But there's also a little bit of a waiting out the media cycle a little bit about this um, because it's not clear the story's coming together in a way that's great for for the administration. I think that's all fair. And yes, I do think that shooting down balloons does cause some of these problems that you articulated. At the same time, though, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm still not entirely sure. And I guess it's connected a little bit. I think we talked about this last week, and or maybe it was the week before, in your argument that the Biden administration overreacted by canceling the the you know, meeting with 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 the Chinese. I think this is sort of continuation of that line of questioning of like, well, what do you want the Biden administration to do, right? I mean, if there is a spy balloon that is actively collecting intelligence floating over the U.S. mainland and people know about it. It does seem untenable, I think, for the Biden administration to say, well, I don't know, do we really want to spend $400,000 shooting down a spy balloon? Now, even if the kind of cost-benefit analysis, you could make it out such that actually the spy balloon is not that big of a deal, I think Democratic publics and publics generally get very angry, and understandably so, when you have such kind of flagrant actions on you know behalf of a foreign entity. And just as I don't think we would, you know, simply, or maybe we would, I don't know. I mean, would we simply just allow known Chinese malware to sit on our systems because, you know, it was too much of a pain in the butt to remove it? Would we really allow a kind of known Chinese spy balloon to keep floating around, you know, across the country? I'm just not sure what the alternative is. Now, where I do think this gets trickier is that, and I think this is where I think it's it's useful that this was accompanied by the unrelated other objects that seem to probably not be Chinese spy balloons that are probably just private industry, whatever, or maybe even stuff from hobbyists, is that um, the airspace is only going to get more and more full as drones increase in sophistication um, and it you know is cheaper to launch these things. Um, and so presumably there's going to have to be some work both on the regulatory side and also on the detection side, so that we have a better sense of what is in our airspace and an ability to discriminate between those things that are, you know, harmless, or even if they're not harmless, are do not pose a national security risk. And therefore, the response should be to fine the person responsible, not, you know, launch a Sidewinder missile at their stupid hobbyist drone, uh, and actual national security threats from foreign entities. 
Yeah, I definitely think that I can't remember who I first saw make this point. So if it was you, my apologies, uh, dear listener. But I think there's an element of, you know, everyone is spying on everyone all the time. This is in reference to the original balloon, not the, you know, balloon that some 10 year old sent up into the sky and just got shot down with a sidewinder. Um that everyone is spying on everybody else all the time. And to some extent, it largely becomes a problem only when the public finds out about it. And then the government has to respond precisely because of the dynamic that Alan has just identified. And I was trying to remember, I believe it was Michael Hayden, a former CIA and NSA head who said after uh, the OMB hack, essentially like, hey, good game, guys. You know, like if, if we did this, I would be proud of us and you guys did nice work. Like there, there is an element of, you know, sort of a tip of the hat to you, sir. Um, and I do wonder whether the Biden administration would have reacted in this way if they had identified the balloon, but it had not been you know, visible to the naked eye such that it didn't become a public story, you know, whether they would have been much more willing to basically let it drift, collect information on it, um, and sort of continue with the spy versus spy games that we all play versus one another. But now they're locked into some level of public response. And it's also worth saying, I mean, the Republican line on this, I think, predictably, because they want to attack Biden on it is, you know, China's laughing at us. My impression from uh, reading coverage of the Chinese government's response from folks who know China well is that they seem to be kind of embarrassed. I mean, they, they can't say that, but that they're not, you know, there's not really an indication that these this latest fleet of objects is from them, that they've been trying to have open communication about it, that this is a real debacle for them. Not necessarily because they did it in the first place. Although, Scott, you should correct me there if I'm getting some, you know, international legal principles fudged here, um, but just that, you know, that it was seen. Um, and so I do wonder to what extent a lot of this hubbub is just over, you know, the veil kind of being ripped away from what everyone at high levels of the government sort of knew was happening anyway. Um, I suppose if I wanted to be really contrarian, I could analogize this to some of the hubbub after the Snowden disclosures, although I don't want to go quite that far. But there was an element of, you know, European powers who knew to some extent what the U.S. was up to, who then when it was revealed were shocked, shocked that there was gambling in this establishment. Yeah, you know, I, I don't disagree at all. And as I, as we said last week, like this, the Chinese surveillance balloon, the actual surveillance is actually a very serious story needs to be addressed. I don't think canceling the meeting with Xi Jinping was the right way to, to address it, but it certainly needed to be addressed in a very serious way because it is a serious spy program. And they, meaning the Biden administration, I think has done a really good job explaining, hey, this is part of a bigger program that we've actually become aware of in the past few weeks and spelling out different parts of it. I'm sure, frankly, they're sharing way more information than we get publicly with allied governments and other folks around the world as part of their broader effort to call China out for violating international kind of rules of the road um, and building up global support to kind of constrain China in various extents. This plays really well into that. That's part of the reason why it's bad for China. And China's probably a little embarrassed about this happen. Um, worth noting, China basically says this, meaning its first balloon, the other three balloons don't even, nobody seems to think has anything to do with China at this point. But for the first balloon, they said, basically, it's actually a civilian airship. We use it for me meteorological study. was never supposed to go into US airspace. Uh, that was as a result of force majeure. This was actually the statement in from the Chinese foreign ministry, that is an international law term, which means basically as a result of conditions outside of our control. 
So they're making an international law argument about what, why what they did is not a violation of U.S. sovereignty, um, because if something happens as a result of force majeure, it is considered uh, conditions that preclude the wrongfulness of a particular action under international law. The argument that this force majeure, very weak, very, very, very weak, um, especially because you know wind patterns, you track them, you release these things knowing it. This balloon, by a lot of accounts, had an ability to steer itself to some extent um, or to be steered. So, Although, although the, of- that Washington Post piece did suggest that it really was a, a change in the the jet stream or the wind pattern or something that blew it off course. Yeah, it's totally possible there's an element to which it went off course. There's also very good reasons to doubt that's that's the story. Uh, it's a possibility. It's something we have to take seriously. And like, if that's the explanation, if this really was a meteorological you know, study or instrument, like then maybe we should acknowledge that and say, okay, maybe this isn't as big a deal as we're, as we're worried about. We may never really know because we blew it up, right? Like we may not have a really super solid sense of what sensors were on this thing because they are now in a million pieces at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. This is part of the raw problem why with this kind of shoot it down mentality and why I think it's it never pays off to play into these hyper reaction um, that you see from people in political quarters to incidents like this. Wait, can can I ask? But but I I thought I mean there were all those photos of you know the Coast Guard and the FBI for some reason collecting pieces of the. Balloon. Oh, they're definitely re- they're definitely recovering it, and I'm sure they'll be able to get some sense of what this thing did. I'm sure they will have much less confidence and much less of a sense of what it's doing than if they had recovered it in whole in its entirety, uh, or maybe had spent more time studying it. Although they had a couple of days to study the device, also. You know, if you're only recovering parts of it, because again, I don't know if they, it seems unlikely to me you're going to recover huge chunks or confident like like tons of it, then you are never going to have a sense of the whole universe of what it's doing because you don't know what might have been destroyed, what capacity it might have had that you can no longer identify. I'm not. Maybe there was no alternative to shooting it down, um, but I, my my point mainly is that shoot it down was the rhetorical point critics of President Biden came out with to say to try and make him look weak. And the administration appears to be responding to it by shooting things down and trying to look stronger. But you're just playing into the hand because shooting it down isn't really a logical response. It isn't necessarily the right way to handle this. It's the way that is going to communicate politically, oh, I'm strong on this. You can't criticize me. But is it the best way to actually handle these from a policy perspective? I'm not sure it is. And I think when you're the governing party and when you're governing officials, when you're president, you got to balance the political instinct a bit with the best way to handle a situation from a more practical perspective. And I'm a little worried that latter perspective is losing out a bit here. Well, from shooting down balloons, let's move over to a discussion of shooting down subpoenas because we have seen special counsel Jack Smith appointed to investigate a spear up two investigations into former President Trump, at least two that we're aware of by the federal government, one related to uh, January 6th and election interference around the 2020 election, the other related to the possession of classified documents at former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate, has issued subpoenas in both investigations, word of which has come to the public by way of the media, and is facing some pushback on those subpoenas because they are targeting people very close to former President Trump. One in the context of the 2020 investigation is a subpoena of Vice President Pence uh, seeking to secure his testimony before a grand jury. He is now pushing back on that reportedly, invoking a variety of legal claims, including that the speech or debate clause, which usually protects the comments by legislators in the Congress, applies to him, at least some of his conduct in regards to January 6th and events around 2020 election. Because he is also the president of the Senate and has a dual hat. So he gets both executive privilege as a member of the executive branch and speech and debate clause as president of the Senate. Pretty choice position to be in. Meanwhile, we're also told that the special counsel is pursuing 
a subpoena against a uh, attorney who worked for former President Trump in relation to the Mar-a-Lago handling of classified documents and is specifically trying to pierce that attorney's claim of attorney-client privilege on the basis of the crime fraud exception, or at least that's the inference drawn from the reporting, because they are saying essentially, look, this lawyer was involved in some of this potentially criminal or allegedly criminal activity around the possession of these classified documents. And particularly, I suspect, the representation to the federal government that all the documents had been returned in the summer of last year, when in fact they had not, as was revealed by the subsequent search of the Mar-a-Lago estate. Quinta, let me start with you on this one. If somebody follows these investigations closely, you know, what should we make of these moves? What does it tell us about what the special counsel is up to? It's been a quiet couple of weeks, really, since he's been appointed. Um, and both of these, of course, came through reporting. They're not really public documents that I'm fully that I'm aware of, I don't believe. I think they're both kind of being discussed supposedly under seal or internally, but at this point have not gone public. This is just because of based on media reporting that reporters have kind of dug up. Does it tell us where this investigation is headed a little bit? Does it tell us more about what they're looking at and and how useful is that information? So let me start first with the crime fraud issue. I think it does certainly suggest that uh, the special counsel, uh, Mr. Wizard, is interested in digging more into Trump's role in uh, potentially obstructing the classified documents improperly held at Mar-a-Lago from being returned to the federal government. And this is something that we've seen before in investigations into Trump. I cannot immediately remember if the crime fraud exception was ever invoked in the Mueller investigation. I feel like it was, but I'm not 100% sure. But the, the investigation did nevertheless rely pretty heavily on testimony from Michael Cohen, Trump's erstwhile lawyer, um, who at that point had pleaded guilty and begun to cooperate with the government. And we've already seen the crime fraud exception being invoked in the January 6th investigation when a federal judge in California found that Trump's conduct in his relationship with John Eastman uh, probably constituted a federal crime having to do with obstruction of Congress and so that the January 6th committee could access emails from Eastman providing Trump with legal advice. So this is kind of a pattern that we've seen before. With Trump, um, and I do think it, it certainly suggests that you know they're they're trying to move closer to the president, whether or not, or the former president, whether or not they'll be successful is anybody's guess. Alan, let me. I know you have thoughts on the the uh, speech or debate issue, so let me turn it over to you on that, and then we can get into whether or not there's actually any merit to Pence's position. Yeah, no. I, so it's interesting. I mean, I look, I think there is some merit to Pence's position. How much merit? is impossible to know until the courts tell us. I mean, so a, a couple of thoughts on Pence's gambit here. So first, I think it's pretty obvious why Pence is doing this. Um, I don't think it's because Pence has these deep commitments to the separation of powers as interpreted through an expansive conception of the speech and debate clause. Alan, he believes it's his responsibility. <laughs> well, look, look, I, I, look I, I will say this. Until we learned about Pence's conduct on January 6th, I really thought that he was a completely spineless non-entity. And I think in fairness to him, he showed real courage and real integrity on January 6th. So he is only mostly spineless, in my view. Um, and like, that's better than totally spineless. That's a lot more than you can say about a lot of other people in Donald Trump's orbit. 
but let's not overstate his uh, you know, abstract commitments to the rule of law. I think it's fairly clear that Pence is in this very awkward position. You know, the, the lane that he has struck out for himself is as not being Trumpist, but not being aggressively anti-Trumpist either, and kind of being a somber warrior for, I don't know, the, the conservative constitution. And he has now clearly come out against Trump, but he doesn't want to do more so than is necessary. So he is using this speech and debate clause as a way of avoiding having to say more mean things about his former boss and in particular the favored candidate of much of the base that he needs to win over um, if he, as he likely will, run for president. Uh, and the speech and debate clause allows him to do that. Okay, so that, that's the politics. Now, of course, Pence's motivation here is not dispositive of whether or not his argument is good or not. And we have to look at that on the merits. And here it's, I don't know, it's, it's, it's tricky. So uh, the speech and debate clause is in the Constitution. It's for those who are following along with their pocket Constitution, which I assume everybody always has open during their rat sec listenings around the fire with their family and the, you know, the family dog. It's Article 1, Section 6. And it starts with the senators and representatives shall, and then it talks about receiving compensation, blah, blah, blah. And then a few sentences later, it says, and for any speech or debate in either house, they shall not be questioned in any other place. And so I think the operative word here is they, and what does they refer to? So it's clear that in context, they refers to senators and representatives. And how far does one apply that? Um, so we can talk about the applications of that to staff. But here the question is, does that apply to the vice president? And the vice president, as Scott noted, has this kind of dual role. He is fundamentally, well, he's kind of a member of both branches. Well, that's the question, right? He, he is the vice president, so he's primarily the member of the executive branch, but he plays a role as president of the Senate. He is, however, not a senator, and that's pretty clear because he's not a senator. He's the vice president. And all the other parts of the Constitution that talk about senators doesn't apply to him. So the real question then is just how narrow are you going to read it, right? If you're going to read it just as applying to senators and representatives, clearly, I think Pence doesn't get the benefits of the speech and debate clause, even if there are some functional reasons for him to get it when it has to do with his role, not primarily as vice president, but primarily or even partially as president of the Senate. But if you're going to read it literally like that, then you run into the problem that that conflicts with other readings of the speech and debate clause, i.e. those readings that apply it to the staff of the Senate and the representatives. So the, the real question is like, we don't know. This is a, there's a real good faith argument here. And, uh, you know, in, in all matters of uh, congressional constitutional law, I refer to uh, Georgetown law professor uh, Josh Chaffetz, who is, I think probably knows more about this than anyone else. And, you know, he's been on record as saying that there's an argument here. Um, it's not a frivolous argument. And so if Jack Smith really wants to force uh, Pence to testify, he's going to have to go through the courts. And that's going to take months and months and months and um, may not ultimately be worth it, given that he and uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland want to move expeditiously on this investigation. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, relax. 
and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Yeah, so this is, I think, a really interesting problem we have kind of with speech or debate clause, which is very similar to the problem with the executive privilege, which is both of these are constitutionally rooted protections for the branches that because, frankly, of the individual interests of each branch over the last several centuries of American existence and the Supreme Court's reluctance to really intrude itself into separations of powers debates has really, both of which have really grown beyond kind of an intelligible scope from the text, at least in my view, right? Well, sorry, so but but so just to jump in on that, I, I think you're right generally, but it, it, the difference, of course, is that there is a speech and debate clause. There's text for the speech and debate clause. Executive privilege is completely made up. Now, it may be made up for good functional structural reasons, but there is no textual support for the for executive privilege within the Constitution. So I I, I don't there there may not be there's not the same textual hook I would agree with you there I think there's like strong structural reasons that are well accepted and date back to the founding arguably stronger in some ways than certain of the expansive applications and claims of speech or debate uh, in terms of you look at early practice by by the framers but regardless the the key point for this purpose for speech or debate I think is that the courts in this tricky position where you know you can apply these textualist lenses that we are kind of of the view about saying oh well. The Constitution, the text just says legislators, so it's members of Congress, representatives, senators, are protected for speeches on the floor and comments they make. Much narrower sort of a view of immunity, but it's grown so broad, essentially through in the interpretation of the courts, the expressions of the branches, that it's hard to know what the limit is. I don't think we really know. We won't really know until the court actually steps in and resolves this, as you noted. But it's kind of, a, in my, I mean, to me, it always strikes me as an ironic note because you have the courts, at least some members of the courts, expressing the kind of old school view that we heard in the context of like the McGann litigation and the original district uh, and appellate court opinions there saying, oh, we got to let the branches fight it out. The courts shouldn't intervene themselves in these sorts of debates. But because these doctrines have grown so broad, because they don't have very defined limits, really like the courts are already sucked into it by allowing these doctrines to develop in these sorts of ways. I don't think there is an easy way out short of, you know, absolute interbranch warfare to actually get a principled resolution of what the scope of these different protections are, because they're not really moored to much anymore. So, uh, you know, on that case, I think we have to wait to see where it comes out. I think the more interesting of these two really is, in terms of where the investigation is headed, is the attorney-client privilege argument that's happening in the context of the Mar-a-Lago estate. Because here is a case where we have really strong evidence. This is always what we said has been the thing that makes Mar-a-Lago so, so different from every other investigation in a lot of ways, is that there's really strong evidence of criminality. You have a false statement provided to the FBI, signed by one lawyer, prepared by the lawyer who's uh, M. Evan Crawford, whose testimony Smith is trying to get in this proceedings, that says something false about what records were at Mar-a-Lago and is demonstrably false because they searched for them and found the records they said weren't there afterwards. So there's clear evidence of criminality. I don't think there's going to be, I think it's going to be pretty open and shut about the application of crime fraud exception in this case. And that gets you really, really close to indicting the former president. Because at that point, you have to ask, well, whose instructions were you acting on, Mr. Crawford, in making this assertion that these records had in fact been searched completely and they had found nothing? including those classified records that were found in former President Trump's desk and next to his passport and in his private storage container. You're at that last link. 
Um, I think it's a sign that this investigation is actually really, really getting close to the conclusion. I think it's still weeks and months away. Like they're going to do a lot of legwork for to get there. It's going to be a lot of legal proceedings. But I think it means the Mar-a-Lago investigation is pretty far along. Maybe the same is true of the January 6th investigation. You know, Pence is a big fish. Probably you wouldn't go after him unless you really thought you were getting close to something. But then again, you know, this is something that's going to take a long time to resolve this issue. So if his testimony is really essential to the case, you're probably not going to be able to bring it to resolution anytime soon. This is going to get litigated probably up to the Supreme Court, I would guess, at least up to an appellate court or on banc. Unlike that, the Mar-a-Lago, it's the, the law of it's pretty straightforward. And soon you might have testimony from somebody that compelled us that the president lied to the FBI. That's it. That's that's kind of like that that itself is a major, major investigative investigative conclusion that leads to, you know, some pretty historical outcomes. Yeah. So I want to go back to Pence for a minute because I think that that's kind of the more interesting legal puzzle for all the reasons that you point out. I mean, I, I do think that, yeah, there's <sighs> As laughable as it might initially sound to say that the vice president is part of the legislature, and I, I know many of us had a good hearty chuckle about that when Dick Cheney tried to make that argument in like 2004 or five, whenever that was. I do agree with Alan. You know, there really is. There's something to that argument. It's genuinely not clear. It's certainly Pence's decision to make that point so that he can, uh, I guess, throw a uh, spoke in the wheel of the investigation into the guy who encouraged people to murder him so that he can then go on to get like 3% in the Iowa caucuses. But that's fine. We all make decisions Stockholm syndrome is a real, pro- is a real, <laughs> it's a real problem. But, but look, I mean, I think that two points, one is that, I mean, the, the speech or debate privilege, unlike executive privilege does not necessarily yield before a criminal investigation and a grand jury, which is kind of the whole point of speech or debate. It's that you don't want, you know, the executive branch to start dragging legislators in front of a judge and charging them with stuff. Um, So in that sense, it could be, I could see how you could argue it could actually be more of a problem for the special counsel's investigation. On the other hand, I think it's also the, the case that, you know, we had a lot of conversations on on lawfare, and I'll point listeners to Jonathan Schaub's great work about how the various investigations into Trump over the many, many years that they were conducted could be scoped such that questions could be asked that wouldn't run into executive privilege problems. And I do think that there's certainly a question about how broad speech or debate can be scoped. You know, does it include every time anyone talks to Pence about his role presiding over the uh, certification or the electoral count? I, I don't know. But, you know, conversations between him and Trump about like whether or not Trump lost the election. Right. That could be pierced before the grand executive privilege there could be pierced before the grand jury. I don't see how that would be covered by speech or debate. And so I can certainly see Jack Smith deciding to pursue this litigation on the subpoena over speech or debate issues or perhaps not but also pursue a more narrower line of questioning that could move the investigation forward in determining Trump's own state of mind without running into the speech or debate problem. Yeah, so I, I kind of two, two somewhat random thoughts just as we're talking about the speech and debate issue. So m- my instinct is that speech and debate probably does shield Pence from at least some questions about at least some activity, particularly the core of like, I was in the Senate and I was presiding over it. I, I do, though, wonder if an argument can be made that this is in some tension 
between Pence's own, and I think the considered views of most good faith legal commentators position, that his role was merely ceremonial, right? Which is to say, the point of the speech and debate clause, kind of as a functional matter, is to make sure that when legislators do the business of legislating, they do so without worrying about reprisals from the executive or judicial branches. Now, the more power you think the legislators have, the more important that immunity is. But in a sense, Pence's whole argument this whole time was that my role here is merely ceremonial. Like my job is just to walk into the Senate and quote unquote, count the votes and then go home. Like my role is not to actually do anything important. But if your role is actually not to do anything important, then the argument for applying the speech and debate clause to your purely ministerial role is also much less important. Again, I don't think this is a knockdown argument at all, but it, it, it does, I think, just show the real lack of a super obvious answer as to this situation, right? Now, I think that's different if the conduct was not Pence acting as president of the Senate for purposes of counting the Electoral College votes, but of Pence or more recently, for example, Vice President Kamala Harris acting as president of the Senate for the purpose of casting tie-breaking votes. In that context, the vice president is actually exercising a legislative power. And there, the speech and debate clause immunity seems like it makes much more sense. Um, but that's just a wrinkle to, to throw in there. The second wrinkle, I wonder, is whether or not this is one of these situations in which Jack Smith needs to take, needs to check in with his boss. Because now we are talking about a decision that raises serious DOJ and executive branch equities. As a general matter, the Department of Justice, obviously not the president's lawyer, right? That's the White House counsel. But as we all know, the Department of Justice tends to take a fairly expansive view of executive power, especially presidential power, but presumably also vice presidential power. So I do wonder if this is one of these situations where Merrick Garland is going to have to step in and affirmatively decide whether Jack Smith can litigate this key question of executive power, though, of course, it's simultaneously a question of executive power and legislative power or executive as legislative. This all gets very complicated. But anyway, again, this is sort of kind of spur of the moment ramblings. But I, this is I, it's, this gets more and more interesting the more I think about it. Thanks, Mike Pence, for giving us the opportunity to think through these questions. Yeah, the seven law professors who will write law reviews about this in the next 10 years of thank you for this inspiration. They're, they're all going to move to Iowa and vote for him in the caucuses. <laughs> it's worth noting, I think, on, the, on your last question, Alan, I was just looking this up. The special counsel regs actually speak to this, right? The extent to which they have to engage with Garland, where Garland's allowed to request for no, ask for a notification of major investigatory or prosecutorial steps. And then he he can conclude that a certain action by the special counsel should not be pursued, but then has to notify Congress. So in theory, if Attorney General Garland does choose to counterman Jack Smith's determination about a particular step being pursued, although I'm guessing that would have happened, I guess I guess that would still that could still happen, right, in response to uh, Pence's brief, like whether that comes back, assuming that's kind of the initiating brief in this kind of exchange, then we, well, Congress will know. Uh, and I suspect we will know because Congress doesn't tend to keep things close to the chest uh, along these lines at some point. From one almost certain presidential aspirant to a certain presidential aspirant, let's talk about Nikki Haley. 
Nikki, Nikki, Nikki Haley. So as Scott mentioned, the former South Carolina governor, uh, Nikki Haley, did she have a role in the Trump administration? I forget. Wasn't she? Uh, she was the ambassador, ambassador to the, the UN. UN. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, where <laughs> given my difficulty in recollecting, I feel like she made no impact whatsoever, um, has declared that she would like to be the next president of the United States. And uh, as the uh, the Bulwark memorably, the magazine The Bulwark memorably analyzed, she's a perfect Republican candidate for 2015. Uh, so let's talk about that. Uh, Quinta, I know you have some thoughts. You, you watched the whole video of her announcement. What did you think? Are we, is it, are we, should we get ready for President Haley? Wow, what a boring video, I have to say. I was, I was so bored that I think I actually kind of tuned out over the course of, it's like, how long long is that video? It's like four minutes long. It's way too long. And the thing is that I, I, millennial, you can't even pay attention for four minutes, Quinta. Oh, come on. It should have been a TikTok. (laughs) Exactly. Well, actually, super interesting question about Republican, about like whether or not political campaigns are going to be able to use TikTok going forward to like reach the youths, given that they've all like been super against TikTok. Anyway, that's a different topic. No, it's just, it's really dull. And it's dull to the point where I actually didn't notice something that I think Sarah Longwell points out in the Bulwark piece that you mentioned, which is that one of the sort of major selling points of the video is that she was, Kaylee was the governor of South Carolina. She was the governor at the shooting at the Mother Emanuel Church, where white supremacist Dylan Roof murdered a number of African-American churchgoers and the minister. And one of her, you know, her big moment on the national stage was that after that, she presided over the taking down of the Confederate flag over the South Carolina State House. Only 150 years too late, but, but the I'm thing, glad she the did thing it. Is, the thing is, the detail about the flag isn't in the video. Which, like, I didn't even notice because I was so bored. But that is that's, a, that's not something the audience of that right, video. Longwell points is out that she, she has this. She has this kind of stirring music about how she, you know, was in South Carolina at a time of hate, and the state got through it, and whatever, blah blah blah. And then she doesn't point to like the main thing that she did because she can't make that argument to the Republican base. And I think you know, therein we have the contradiction of Nikki Haley, right? That the the aspects of her that would be potentially appealing to a national electorate in a general election are not things that are going to be appealing to the base. Um, And I I think you see this also in how she addresses her identity as a child of Indian immigrants, where she, she sort of puts that uh, front and center in the video, but obviously given the sort of increasingly nativist and I don't even know is I think at this point we can sort of comfortably call it like white nationalist turn of a a small fraction of the Republican base. It's not clear whether that's going to cause her problems. She's sort of wobbled on whether or not she rejects Trump or embraces him. And the end result for me was that the video was just kind of like a whole lot of nothing. And it ends with this bizarro, like Sarah Palin-esque, like hashtag girl boss thing about, you know, when you when you kick them back, it hurts more if you're wearing heels, which doesn't even make any like I don't even know what the hell that's supposed to mean. If you jam your stilettos in people's eyes, it's really painful. Is what I hear. <laughs> right, it sounds quite violent. <laughs> um, I it just felt like a video from a different era. So I maybe I'll be proven wrong, but I'm I'm not betting that this is going to go anywhere. 
But Quinta, aren't you just describing the problem for any Republican? I mean, the issue, right, is that the same things that are attractive to a part of the Republican base, right? And again, we shouldn't minimize it, but we also shouldn't over-exaggerate it. There's a big white nationalist part, but Republicans are off, often have also made big inroads with you know, Latinos and Asian Americans, right? So clearly, like, it's a more complicated story, right, than just the white nationalist takeover of the Republican, of the Republican base. Right? It, it's, it's just, it's complicated, right? You know, whatever it is. Sure. No, look, it's, it's, it's definitely complicated. Um, but the, I think the problem is that the people who vote in Republican primaries are different than people who vote for Republicans in the general election. And, and that's what I mean. And so, so the question is like, like, I guess my question is, the problems with Nikki Haley's announcement, are they problems with Nikki Haley or are they problems with literally any Republican who will, on the one hand, have to win the primary with this very rabid Republican, you know, MAGA base and then pivot in a general election? Um, that's that's the kind of that's what I'm not sure about. Right? Again, like, I don't find Nikki Haley to be like a particularly like magnetic politician, but, you know, whatever. Um, I, I just can't figure out how much this is. This is Nikki Haley being punished for going first and being the first one to put these structural contradictions on view or or whether like whether, you know, someone else like like would Pence do better? Would even DeSantis, frankly, do better? Right. Once yeah. he finally has to, you know, stop just being the governor of Florida and actually go on the national stage. No, I think I think there's definitely something to that. And you see it in The New York Times had a report uh, a few days ago, I want to say, about how DeSantis is really struggling to try to sort of walk this line of like not hitting back against Trump until I think it's a, you know, don't shoot till you see the whites of their eyes situation. But the problem is that like, if you wait until you see the whites of their eyes, you really have to hit them on the first go. Well, at that point, their stiletto has pierced your eyes. Exactly. Yeah. Oh God. Okay. This got violent. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I mean, look, I, I think, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think that Haley is not, you know, a, hugely strong candidate for other reasons but i i do think that there, that's there's a lot of it and you see that also in how her, the way that she presents herself in the video is not you know anti-trump but saying it's time for a new generation which is a way of saying i'm what like 40 years younger than donald trump without saying you know i'm anti-donald trump um but no i think i think it's gonna be really difficult i'm personally i mean Never say never. I would not be surprised if we ended up with another kind of 2016 style, just complete free for all where Trump ends up winning just because the party can't consolidate around any of the other candidates. So I take that concern seriously, Quinta, that we're going to see a repeat that, you know, this balkanization of kind of the Republican primary electorate that enabled former President Trump to get the nomination in 2016. But that can break different ways, right? Like if you have DeSantis and Trump competing for that kind of far right faction of the Republican primary vote, that means the balkanization may leave somebody else with the plurality. You know, my my general philosophy for these things up front is that really looking too heavily on like polling and frankly preferences in terms of candidate at this stage is usually premature. Like you look at who a year out from the last several presidential elections who wasn't an incumbent was seen as like the person most primary voters would select as their candidate was not a person who finished like often even in like the top two or three, um, with the exception of being like maybe John McCain, who fell out of the race for a very long time and then had this kind of dark night, uh, dark horse recovery towards the end, right? Um, in a crazy, crazy story. I like, I, like, I like John McCain as Batman, a dark night rising. Yes, exactly. The Maverick <laughs> back again. Um, so, so, 
but so I think you know, it's worth looking at like more fundamental strengths, things that could play in certain per- people's favors that if the right political chips fall in the right place, right? I think Haley actually has a lot of these. Like she's got the fact that she is, you know, governor of a Southern state, competitive primary state, unless for Republicans than for Democrats now, but still she's got the national security credentials. She's carefully cultivated by being, you know, U.S. ambassador to the U.N., a seat that for at least the Obama administration was on the National Security Council. I think she was as well for Trump. I can't recall for sure that he kept up that seat there or not. It kind of, kind of bounces back and forth. You know, she has the credentials that pulls in some mega threads, but also can pull the centrist people. She's relatively young, although not as young as DeSantis. Um, she's a woman. She's a person of color. She has a lot of these things that pull a different political threads. And she has really, really high favorables among Republican primary voters, right? The thing she might not have right now is like name recognition. Because who do they know? Well, they know Donald Trump because he's been president until recently and he's still in the news all the time. And they know Ron DeSantis because Ron DeSantis does provocative as hell things all the time to get on the news and to get that attention. So, you know, I'm wondering whether the fact she's got high favorabilities, a lot of other factors, once she's able to get her, you know, self out in the news, out ahead, more public recognition and more public association with the idea might not have some appeal. Um, I could see that kind of playing out. I don't think we really know because there's just a lot of chaos in this particular process, but I wouldn't write her off too handily. I think it's getting ahead of the the race to do that here. And one other factor it's also worth being in mind, like, even if she maybe doesn't get the nomination for president, it's a very, very tempting vice presidential candidate. And that alone, uh, this could play a role in putting her very high on that list. Yeah, that last point is really good. I mean, a Santis-Haley ticket is non-trivial. I, I think sort of one question that I, I had is it does seem that how, and maybe this is sort of obvious in retrospect, but I think it's somewhat unpredictable, is how Haley will do depends in part on how Donald Trump reacts. And I think that's what we don't yet know. I mean, as far as I can tell, he has not he has not trained his fire on Haley nearly as much, for example, or maybe even at all, I don't know, um, but as he has on DeSantis. And, you know, if it was anyone else, you could, I think, explain that as a strategic choice not to, you know, through the Streisand effect, raise someone else's profile by saying mean things to him. But Donald Trump is pure id and is incapable of acting strategically. So uh, maybe he just doesn't see her as a threat. At the same time, I do wonder if it's a mistake for her to get in this early because if Trump does, you know, because he is pure id, decide he has to go after anyone who challenges him, it seems like then she's taking the brunt of the attack. And then that gives DeSantis an opportunity to wade in, right? And no longer be the sole target of Trump's criticisms. So that, of course, counsels coming in later. Though, of course, the later she comes in, the harder it is for her to lock up the endorsements and the donors and stuff like that. So this is all, in other words, I'm a terrible political pundit, but it's all interesting. You know, I'll say, I think her getting in plays into the idea that she's got certain strong factors and what she needs is greater name recognition and momentum. Um, I suspect that was her calculus uh, as a non-political person. We have very smart political people who listen to this podcast and tweet at us. So, you know, I would be curious to see the reactions, potentially furious at me over this. But my suspicion is she says, I have high favorability. I have a kind of unique reach to different prongs of the party, unique strengths. If I'm going to make this happen, I need to get early momentum. And I'm going to do that by being on the stage first where there's not as much competition for attention. Uh, and so I kind of suspect that's when it went in here. And I kind of suspect that logic is a lot independent of Donald Trump. I think she probably would have had a similar factor if she had 
uh, you know, similar profile of strengths and weaknesses with other candidates as well. And if she comes under criticism from him, she has certain unique ways to respond, you know, um, and that may help her with certain parts of the party, especially if she can also still pull up certain like mega culture warrior threads that she might still be able to pull into. And she's tapped into a little bit in the past, although somewhat less successfully, certainly than DeSantis, for whom it is the main kind of thread of his appeal. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of our time together this week. But this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to ponder over in the week to come. Alan, what do you have for us this week? Sure. So I have a book recommendation, hardly original. It is East of Eden by John Steinbeck. Uh, And I recommend it because one of the, uh, for me, unanticipated joys of growing up and getting a bit older is that I can actually reread all the books that I read in high school or should have read in high school and just for some reason didn't and actually enjoy them as literature, right? Not as stuff that I was assigned to read at 15 when it was way too early for me to read them. And I think, you know, some books you go back to that are great classics and you're like, this is a, I, I, okay, this is a classic. I get it. And other books you just read and you go, wow, this is just a really good book, which is of course why it became a classic to begin with when it was first released. And, you know, I have not read a ton of John Steinbeck and I've not read, uh, um, you know, The Grapes of Wrath, which is, I think, going to be next on my reading list. And so uh, I just picked up East of Eden at the bookstore a few days ago and it's fabulous. It's a really interesting book. You know, it is this kind of allegorical retelling of Adam and Eve, but set in the Salinas Valley of the Central California in the uh, in early 20th century. And yeah, it's a it's a classic for a reason. So, um, you know, if if you have never read it or you only read it in high school because someone told you to read it, you may uh, you may decide to read it again. It is it is a good book. You know, in some ways it hasn't aged super well, <laughs> which is true for a, a lot of uh, famous mid-20th century American literature, uh, but it is still clearly a work of great literature and um, a classic for a reason. Yeah, I remember Steinbeck being one of those authors I was forced to read and then ended up really loving uh, in high school. I think I read East of Eden in high school or college, I can't remember which it was, um, and a couple of other books. Uh, and so that's a great recommendation to revisit. Quinta, what do you have for us this week? Yeah, Alan went with high culture. I'm going with the truly the lowest of the low. I finally I'm- slumming it with the rest of us. Quick, yeah. glad to have you on board. What could, yeah. what unitask or kitchen implement are you talking about this week? Well, I just I just feel like Quincy just comes in. It's like so. My recommendation is like the most depressing of Truffaut cinema works or something. Like this is like this like the classic Jurassic object lesson. For the record, I have never seen any of those. Quinta truly is our Werner Herzog. That's how I like to think of it. <laughs> I would like to see the baby. All right. See, that that was a good mix of high and low right there. That was there a Mandalorian go. reference. Okay. So my object lesson is a Rolling Stone on a car by Miles Klee. Um, and it is an article that I've been hoping that someone would write for a long, long time. And the title of the article is, Who is at Cat Turd 2? The shitposting king of mega Twitter. And it is a profile of this guy who apparently is a middle-aged dude in Florida who has turned into, like, the taskmaster for Elon Musk's Twitter, where he'll tweet, like, I'm not getting any impressions on my jokes. And then Elon Musk will respond saying, concerning, we'll look into it. And then all of Twitter will get, you know, unplugged and plugged in again. He is just everywhere on the right-wing internet. I had no idea who he is or, like, why people like his tweets or really anything about him. And uh, Miles Clear at Rolling Stone has written a profile, though. The the man himself remains anonymous, but it does have some 
some biographical details. And I was just, you know, happy to have some of my curiosity sated about what the hell is going on here. It's one hell of a handle. Cat turd. No, can I just say? Never the best really part explains is that, why that's his thing. Well, but even better, there was there already a cat turd? That's why he has to be cat turd too? That, that is addressed <laughs> in the story. That guy is like, I missed my moment, man. Bummer, I could have been the cat turd, but he said, ev- I hand it over to the other guy. Evidence one million that the internet was just a giant mistake. <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. Well, for my object lesson this week, I'm dipping back into the obituary pages <laughs> again for the death of another one of my favorite musical artists. I'm a few weeks late on this, but I thought it warranted mentioning uh, Tom Verlaine, who was the front man of the band Television, a kind of not... Well, no one would call it prolific band uh, from the late 70s, early 80s, but one of the like kind of unsung heroes of phenomenal guitar rock uh, in that era um, passed away. Uh, really interesting artist. His band, Television, their album, Marquee Moon, is one of my favorite albums of all time. It's truly amazing. It also has a special place in my heart because my wife tried to buy me a vinyl copy for one of our first holidays together, I think birth my birthday. And through a series of incidents, accidentally ordered me five CD copies, even though I had not had a working CD player in several years. But they're somewhere still floating around my house in boxes because we missed the return window. Uh, but regardless, it is a phenomenal album. I have a copy I can give to you if you see me in DC and you want it on CD. Definitely worth checking out. He also has some phenomenal solo stuff that I dipped into a few years ago and probably going to try and dip into again when I have an opportunity. But check those out and check out his works. Um, he passed away a few weeks ago at the age of 73 uh, and uh, you know tribute to him check it out well folks that is the end of this week's episode rational security is a production of lawfare so be sure to visit our homepage at lawfareblog.com for links to past episodes for our written work and the written work of other lawfare contributors and for information on lawfare's other phenomenal podcast series while you're at it, follow us on Twitter at RETL Security. Be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. And be sure to sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon at patreon.com slash lawfare for an ad-free version of this podcast, among other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Kara Shillin of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Patcha Howell. On behalf of my co-host, Alan Quinta, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Till then, goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.